Good afternoon. It's Friday the 20th, 25th of August 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Brian Gerrish. Great to be here. And uh, joining us by video link from Damascus is Vanessa Bealey. Uh, welcome to the program, Vanessa. Now we're going to get straight on with uh, Greece and wildfires. Uh, what's the latest? Well, um, as you probably know, we've reported on the roads fires a couple of weeks ago. We reported on the terrible um, Maui, Hawaii fires last week. And this week I'm focusing, although I know people are going to scream at me because there are fires all over the place and people have been sending me very interesting information about them. But this week um, I'm going to focus again on Greece, on the port of Alexandropoli. Uh, which is in northern Greece, very close to Turkey. And interestingly, if you look to the southeast, Panakale, if I, I, I have probably murdered that word, has also been affected by wildfires, which temporarily uh, closed down the shipping lane there, the Dardanelles uh, Straits. But just moving on, um, this shows basically the extent of the wildfire in the area which is known as Evros and Alexandropolis, is basically the capital um, of Evros, of, of the region of Evros. And as you can see, if we move on to the next slide, um, the so Copernicus, for, which is a, a, a sort of a, a database for wildfires and information and data, um, this is the largest burned area on European soil for many years. More than 720,000 acres of forest have been lost. And of course, the usual stories, awful stories of farm animals, children being trapped, migrants, uh, migrants that were crossing from the Turkish border into Greece were trapped in the forest because they were too afraid to, to contact the authorities. There are stories also that in some cases, or in one case at least, they were deliberately trapped and burned in the fires. So another tragedy unraveling. But let's have a look at the, at the importance of Alexandropolis. We should also, first of all, know that the other two main ports in Greece, um, which are Thessaloniki and Piraeus in Athens, have uh, considerable investment from both Russia and China. So Alexandropolis, a sleepy Greek port, has become vital to the war in Ukraine. Let's see why in the next slide or next few slides. So it states quite clearly in this article by The Economist, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, America's armed forces have stepped up their use of Alexandropolis to deliver weapons, including tanks, armored personnel carriers, and helicopters. At one recent point, more than 2,400 pieces of military equipment sat on the dock. Um, and then if we look to the bottom, Britain and Italy, among others, that are planning to use the port for military shipments. And then moving on again from the same article, in particular, it provides access to Ukraine via Bulgaria and Romania using it as a way station, skirts the Black Sea, which Russia patrols, and the Bosporus, a choke point controlled by Turkey, a member of NATO, but a capricious one. Um, better still, the port has plenty of spare capacity. This is an important factor relating to the fire, unlike the two larger ports of uh, Thessaloniki and Piraeus, which, as they say, happens to be run by firms with links to, respectively, Russian and Chinese governments. Moving on to the next slide. So um, basically, uh, they're talking here about uh, drawing up an ambitious expansion plan. Now, I'm sure, Mike, when we talked about this, we, we actually said to each other, I wonder if there are plans for expansion of the port. And of course, tragically, whether deliberately or not, um, it would mean that the fire would, would basically um, enable this expansion. Um, the port's uh, sorry, can we just go back to that previous slide for a second, Mike? There's one um, important point. Um, what we actually say at the bottom, uh, Mr. Chats Mikhail, um, we are preparing for a world with different corridors and it will last long after the war ends. That gives you a very clear indication of the importance of this port to NATO in particular. Uh, and then also the port may soon be an energy hub, too, with plans for two floating liquefied natural gas LNG terminals a few miles offshore. These will bring mostly American LNG to Greece, Bulgaria and other parts of southeastern Europe, helping them to reduce reliance on Russian gas. So this gives again an indication of the importance of this port to NATO 
to reduce reliance of Europe on Russia. Greece and Bulgaria very recently signed a memoranda that changed the energy map of Southeast Europe. They made it very clear in the next slide that the floating natural gas regasification unit in Alexandropolis is progressing. Uh, in our region, a new dense network of energy roads is being formed in the Balkans in Europe and beyond. Greece and Bulgaria have a crucial role to play in Europe's energy security, and they can offer wider services to the EU. Mitsotakis said and concluded, we can become providers of energy security for the wider region, even to Ukraine, interestingly. And guess who turned up on Monday for a meeting with Mitsotakis? Mitsotakis, um, none other than Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, and Greece has given its reassurances that it will continue uh, to support Ukraine, including alleged training for the alleged F-16s that are going to be supplied to uh, Ukraine. No mention of the wildfires by Zelensky, no offer of help, no offer of condolences to the families. He simply turned up to ensure further NATO supply, NATO member states supply to Ukraine. So, uh, you know, obviously it's just a coincidence that everywhere we look at where wildfires are actually burning at the moment, there seems to be development plans for the area that the, that the fires are burning. Um, but, that, yeah. you know, it's, it's coincidence, coincidence just because it's global warming that's causing this. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. so that they can bring the fossil fuel uh, LNG. Yes. Uh, OK. Mm. OK. Thank you, Vanessa, for that. Now, let's uh, move to the Prigozhin situation. So here he is with uh, uh, Dmitry uh, Utkin as well. Uh, these are the only uh, copyright free images we could find of them both. Uh, now, the question is, are they dead or are they not dead? We're starting to see people uh, issue eulogies now. Uh, and of course, as we'll see in a second, when Putin was speaking about uh, Prigozhin and the air crash yesterday, he was using the past tense, although no formal identification has been made. So nobody knows for certain uh, whether he is actually dead or not. I just wanted to mention, uh, this is the aircraft that crashed. Uh, this uh, this aircraft has, a, not this aircraft, but this aircraft type has a massively uh, positive safety record. So, you know, at, at the uh, beginning, some people were suggesting, well, was it some kind of mechanical issue? And there were headlines in the press about uh, it having to go for some uh, maintenance just prior to the flight and so on. But actually, if we look at the uh, video footage, um, it's pretty clear that the tail is missing from this. Uh, the tail is separate, separated from the rest of the aircraft. Uh, total loss of control. Um, in fact, the tail was uh, eventually found about a mile and a half from the main crash site. And as I say, some speculation suggests that there may have been mechanical failure, but I think that's highly unlikely. Uh, the only prior accident involving this aircraft type uh, up until yesterday, up until Tuesday, sorry, which uh, where there was any fatality involved uh, was a, a flight from Brazil, which ended up having a head-on collision with a Boeing 737. 154 people were killed. They were all on the Boeing. Uh, so that this is a, a other than that zero fatalities up until Tuesday in this particular aircraft. So that probably uh, either a bomb or a shoot down. Uh, we're not sure which. But here's the thing. Uh, at the early reports were suggesting that uh, there was a second Wagner plane uh, in the air at the time. Uh, even the mirror picked this up. Uh, mystery over second Wagner plane seen zigzagging and landing after the Russian plane, plane crash. There's been complete silence about this since. Uh, and But it is known that Prigozhin, as a matter of course, uh, used to fly with you know, two or three aircraft, certainly two aircraft, and he would choose which one he would get on with a view to sort of minimizing the risk uh, to himself by keeping people guessing about which flight he would actually be on. So it's not entirely clear. Now, as we said, uh, Putin, for the first time yesterday, uh, decided to comment on this. Uh, he offered his sincere condolences. He did use the past tense with respect to Prigozhin himself. But again, he didn't uh, say specifically uh, whether uh, Prigozhin and Utkin are actually dead or not. Uh, but the other interesting aspect of this that, that needs a bit of correction was this story. And we'll do a translation of this from the Russian. This is RIA, RIA Novosti. Um, and this is the acting commander-in-chief um, replaced. So uh, in other words, General Avsilov became the acting commander-in-chief uh, because his predecessor, uh, the, um, sorry, Sergei Sur uh, Surov, 
Sir Sir Robigan. Yeah, he was uh, removed from his position. But the thing is that nobody had seen him in public since uh, June or so. So I'm not really certain that, although the the timing of the announcement seemed to be coincidental, I don't think this was just a genuine coincidence because he has been effectively out of the job for quite a while now. I think that's right, Mike, because that that was being talked about some time ago. So... I so think that's circumstantial. Yes. So um, I mean, uh, f- very. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. There's clearly a lot of stuff fl- flying around, Vanessa, on the internet. Uh, I'm not sure that there's any, very much of it is true or correct. So it's pretty much impossible to say who might have been responsible for it. No, I mean, I think it's all speculation at the moment. A lot of people are doing some very good research, but until the body is identified until that second plane is, is also identified and found. And until, I guess, the official investigation is carried out, we can't say categorically um, that Prigozhin is dead. And, and the Russian government, I know Putin made his uh, statement, but the Russian government has been sort of uncharacteristically reticent to, to come forward with information. Yes. What are your thoughts? Well, I think the biggest thing, Mike, is this is going to give the West uh, um, a wonderful uh, media scoop to keep the attention off the reality of what's happening on the battlefield, which is absolutely no movement in the Russian in the Ukrainian counteroffensive, and huge losses for the Ukrainians. So, at a point where it's becoming evident the Ukraine's in trouble, this will allow the Western media to deflect public opinion, Vanessa. public attention. Yeah, and also to take attention away from BRICS, of course, which is a you know a disaster for for NATO and for the West. Well, we'll be coming on to BRICS a little later, so uh, let's we'll talk about a little bit more about that uh, then. Let's come on to banking, uh, and first of all, I just wanted to highlight this uh, from the uh, the Dutch uh, government. Um, we'll again do a quick translation of it, uh, and this is about cash payments. Now, in fact, the issue of cash payments in Holland has been something, I think this page was originally published in 2022, in October or so, uh, but it was updated in the last couple of days to highlight the fact that there's now a bill uh, going through Parliament. So if we just have a look at this, uh, they were saying that uh, at this time you may pay for all purchases in cash. For cash purchases above €10,000, the seller must conduct a customer due diligence, uh, but not all sellers accept cash. The Cabinet is working on a bill to ban cash payments. Uh, above 3,000 euros, uh, and that's basically it. So uh, this is the bill. Uh, it has been uh, it was initially laid before Parliament in uh, October 2022, but it's now starting to make progress, um, and it is sponsored by the, uh, the finance minister in the Netherlands. So uh, this is uh, a further attempt to restrict the use of cash in another European country. The, the 3,000 euros is not the, lo- the worst case. Spain and Italy... I think are around the 1,000 euro mark. Uh, and uh, so there are other countries in Europe that have, have lower levels than this, but we see the direction of travel. Yeah, and the thing, the thing which is interesting for me, Mike, is that this is policy which is coming up across na- national borders. It's happening in UK, it's happening in European countries, and therefore the policies that the banks are enacting has to come from cent- some central position uh, I think that's that's an easy win. There's something going on. The policy is setting across um, the borders of nation states. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to just take a little bit of a look at, uh, at the banking industry. And first of all, I wanted to um, draw our viewers' attention back to two interviews that I did with a gentleman called Trevor Kitchen. This was the first one, Forex and Banking Fraud. And this was essentially about his experiences having identified uh, what he regarded as fraud in the uh, exchange rate and the position of the Swiss franc. Uh, this is a gentleman, you can actually see his picture on screen. Uh, as a result of him reporting wrongdoing to the authorities, he was absolutely uh, vilified and hounded. And he experienced the uh, firsthand the power of the European and the dangers of the European arrest warrant. So if you haven't listened to either of those two uh, interviews, perhaps you might like to do that. Um, But uh, Trevor was kind enough to send me an email 
Um, uh, with regard to this article, so from US News, regulators review of over 30 Swiss banks find shortcomings in money laundering controls. And if we get into um, some of the text, at least, it's pretty simple. It's the fact that uh, there's been an in-depth review of more than 30 banks. And that review has found that a large number failed to meet basic requirements for analysing the risk of money laundering. So this was a particularly interesting article on the back of the fact that we've had Trevor Kitchen giving his experiences, which is when he reported wrongdoing in the banks to the authorities, nothing happened to the banks, but he was put under intense pressure. So... Um, what uh, can we say? Well, the first thing that I thought about this particular article uh, was that uh, does shortcomings, is that the new term for criminal corruption? I'm not sure, but uh, that was the headline that uh, they'd found some shortcomings in the banks. So I thought we'd take a little journey through the Financial Conduct Authority and uh, his uh, part of their information. This is dealing with 2021. The total amount of fines on banks so far is uh, 500, uh, sorry, is 567 million. million. Thank you, Mike. The uh, figures floating a bit there, 567 million. And they mentioned National Westminster Bank, but let's have a look through some of the detail. HSBC, uh, we've got 64 million effectively. NatWest is mentioned again, 264. These are all fines for offences, money laundering or breaking the rules. On it goes, Credit Suisse, 147 million. Uh, Lloyds Bank, 90.6 million. And uh, another Lloyds Bank, 64. Goldman Sachs, 48 million. Standard Charter Bank, 102 million. Bank of Scotland, 45 million. Uh, what do I think we're seeing here? We're seeing systematic or systemic uh, corruption in the banking system. But all that seems to happen is that fines, which are relatively small for the overall assets of the bank, are placed. So um, alongside this, we've got the situation with gold. Now, I've taken the uh, comment from the Royal Mint, but just if people are not sure about it, this is about the fixing or establishing the gold price. And it gives an explanation as to why gold fixing is used. Uh, but if I just have a look at a bit of the text here, put simply, the gold fix is a pricing mechanism, which is an action throughout the day. It arrives at a value based on the buying and selling movement within the marketplace on a particular day. The London bullion market is the international home of gold pricing. And down here, it makes the claim that to all intents and purposes, gold remains the original and most widespread global currency carrying what it describes as monetary value throughout the world. Well, I think there's a bit of debate to be had about that, but we'll leave that for another day. Uh, let's just have a look at uh, how it says decisions are, are reached and why does the price of gold fluctuate? So, the bit that caught my attention in how decisions is reached is that it says currently 12 outside participants have accreditation to contribute to the gold price, the LBMA gold price, including Barclays Bank, Goldman Sachs, HSBC and JP Morgan. So as a lay person, it just seemed to me rather strange that banks, which are clearly demonstrating their inability to deal with fraud inside their own banks, are then used to sit effectively on a committee to help fix the price of gold. Uh, but it also says that the World Gold Council, uh, which claims 60% of the world gold reserves are held amongst just five national governments, it says that central banks are significant buyers of the gold uh, in the gold market, so their buying and selling patterns are carefully watched. Um, so we've now got the interesting situation. The circle goes round because we've also got the central banks helping to fix the price of gold from which they benefit. Um, but here we've got more on the market itself, and it's uh, talking about uh, when the prices are set and who administers them. Um, let's have a listen to this uh, little video clip where the uh, bullion market is talking about itself. 
LBMA is the world's authority for precious metals. We are the standard-setting organization that defines how precious metals are refined as well as traded around the world. It's our job to ensure the quality and the integrity of the metal itself as well as the market participants. Our members are leading firms involved in the full life cycle of precious metals, from being mined, from rock in the ground, being refined, being transported, being stored, and then finally being sold, whether as a bar or as a piece of jewellery. These miners, refiners, banks, trading houses, ETF providers, security companies, vaults, even central banks, must follow LBMA standards for the benefit of customers around the world. Our board has an independent chairman as well as non-executive directors, which ensure the independence of the governance of the LBMA. But there are also elected market directors who sit on the board and ensure the market is steering the development of the association. Beyond that, we have many subcommittees and working groups in which market participants can be engaged in steering everything that LBMA does. We provide quality control for the metal produced and we set high standards for business conduct. And we're also the voice of the market for governments, regulators and investors. We do that through the Good Delivery List and the Global Precious Metals Code. The Good Delivery List defines what's acceptable when it comes to the appearance and the shape of the bars themselves. It's also considered the de facto international standard for gold and silver. The Global Precious Metals Code is a code of conduct which promotes a fair, effective and transparent market. It provides market participants with principles and guidance to uphold high standards of business conduct. All of this creates confidence in the market for all participants. We work closely with the commercial vaults as well as the Bank of England, and the vaults only accept bars which meet the good delivery standards. They also physically inspect each bar as it comes through the door to make sure that it's up to standard. As such, they act as the gatekeepers of the market. We're also leading the world in responsible sourcing thanks to the strength of our responsible sourcing program. Our aim is to maintain integrity as well as proactively develop the precious metals market. That means we're always looking forward and anticipating any future needs and requirements. So, just my opinion on this, we, we've got banks that uh, can't deal with the corruption inside the banks and the money laundering. They are huge concerned about that, working alongside and in the very organisations that are working to uh, create independence or independence of governance over gold. They're giving a voice to the marketplace, including the regulators, and we should have confidence in what's happening here. Well, I'm going to suggest I don't have much confidence. Uh, let's look at the World Gold Council, because that was also mentioned just now. now. This was established by some of the world's, quote, world's most forward-thinking mining companies. But if we go on through, it says that they are providing a central bank's program, uh, providing authoritative research, statistical data, and all of this is going through to engage bilaterally with the central banks and official sector investors. So this is a, a wheel within a wheel, uh, but we should believe that those mining companies are working in partnership with the banks who we've already seen have got massive problems with the corruption. And uh, if we have a look at some of the governance issues, this is uh, the gentleman who is uh, the chief executive, David Tate. Now, we're not suggesting that he has done anything wrong in any way, uh, but it's very interesting to see that uh, uh, he's worked as the global head of fixed income macro products at Credit Suisse. And uh, he's also had a career with Goldman Sachs. So we've got people moving through the banking system in and out of the organizations which are working to control the gold price. And uh, if we add a bit more to the mix, we're back on uh, the currency situation. And uh, we've got this Reuters report from December the 6th, 2022, a mere 80 trillion, what they described as a blind spot. Uh, the Bank of England is concerned because there's a 80 trillion hole. Uh, let's have a look at some of the comments. Pension funds and other non-bank financial firms are more than 80 trillion of hidden off-balance sheet dollar debt in FX swaps, the Bank for International Settlement says. Uh, and then it just tells you a little bit about what this is, what, what the whole thing is about. An example where a Dutch pension fund or Japanese insurer borrows dollars and lends euro or yen 
before later repaying them. And there's been a history of problems with this sort of transaction. It's a minor issue. It's a little blind spot over 80 trillion. The missing dollar debt from these swaps, forwards and currency swaps is huge. Uh, the Switzerland-based institution said. So this is the Bank of International Settlements. But I'm going to highlight again that uh, we shouldn't be worried because this is just a little bit of a blind spot. If we have a look at Thomson Reuters Practical Law and encourage people to visit this really excellent website, it's got quite a lot of detail about the lead bank regulators. And of course, we see the Bank of England is leading there with the Prudential Regulation Authority and the Financial Conduct Authority that's putting out those minor fines on the banks. It gives the purposes of the Bank of England, ensuring monetary and financial stability, uh, an oversight of the system. And uh, then it tells us about some other authorities. So we've got the Treasury here, the Payment System Regulator, Financial Ombudsman Service, Financial Services Compensation Scheme. And previously, we had an input from the European Banking Authority uh, so probably it's the Treasury we should pay attention to. But of course, if we go back to the Bank of International Settlements itself, uh, a few weeks, months ago, in fact, UK Column highlighted that their innovation hub had come to London and given itself full diplomatic immunity. Uh, but here we've got a quote from their general manager, Augustine uh, Carstens. The BIS, together with its partners, is taking a leading role in coordinating the work of the central banks on technical innovation. And of course, BIS working in partnership with the Bank of England and everything that is conducted here um, is essentially digitizing a system which we can identify with major corruption problems. So I'm just going to suggest to our audience that uh, what we've got here uh, is the strange situation of a Swiss bank op operating with diplomatic immunity uh, alongside the Bank of England. Um, both of these two banks are well aware of the depth of the corruption in the whole of the banking system, but nobody's talking about that. So my comment is that uh, the Bank of England is complicit in both the secrecy and preservation of a banking system that the man on the Clapham omnibus, to use that expression, would regard as institutionally corrupt and unfit for purpose. And the key point of my report today is that alongside the banking corruption, we have those same banks working to control the gold price, uh, which supposedly is helping to underpin the whole the whole scheme. So we'll do more on this in due course. Okay, uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but please do share any material you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, now, we just want to remind everybody that uh, tomorrow on Glasgow Green at the Commonwealth Monument, uh, that's 1 p.m. tomorrow. Uh, there is a, a peace rally, Rally for Peace and Freedom. Uh, David Scott will be speaking at that. David Clues, uh, Lauren Wilson, Pier uh, uh, Alex Pierce, and Colin Buchanan. Um, so uh, do get along to that if you're in Glasgow. Okay, thank you for that. And this is uh, just a thank you for an email that was sent to me uh, with this attachment, IoT News, Advanced Lithium Battery for the Global smart meters industry. So if you've got worries about smart meters, could be a water meter, electricity meter, a gas meter, or even a heat meter. Um, what's uh, this uh, about? Well, we've got a company here, a Chinese company, Eve, providing comprehensive solutions for smart meters uh, across the board. But this is the statistic, 1.7 billion uh, lithium battery. So you can make of that what you like. Do you want it in your house? I'll leave you to decide. Okay, Vanessa, let's come back to you and uh, bring us up to date with what's going on in Syria, because it looks like uh, a new, well, how do we describe it? A new campaign kicking off? No. Yes, entirely a new campaign of destabilization. We've been talking very much about the North and the Northeast, although we have <clears throat> drawn attention to uh, Al-Tanaf, the US illegal military base, one of the biggest, which is circled there on the borders uh, with Jordan and Iraq. But today I'm going to talk about a new campaign concocted by um, British, French, American intelligence agencies to destabilize the South 
the star there is the, uh, the governorate of Sweda. Sweda is majority Druze population. Druze are an Abrahamic uh, monotheistic uh, ethnic religion uh, that are uh, in Syria, Israel, and Lebanon predominantly. And the largest population, I think, figures between 600,000 to 800,000 in Syria. The religion itself is not uh, Islam-based. It ha- it's based on Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Ishmaelism, and various other uh, faiths and religions. But what we're seeing, um, and, and this, I just wanted to draw people's attention to this because I'm aware that a lot of people have not been following the Syria uh, situation from the beginning. But in 2018, I covered an ISIS massacre, which was one of the worst uh, during the 12 years of war against Syria in Sweda, in the eastern villages particularly, but in Sweda city itself, hundreds of civilians killed, majority women and children. Uh, by ISIS under the protection of the U.S. military base at Al Hanif. So that makes the following information even more uh, unusual. So first of all, uh, this is according to information that has been put out by leading uh, media figures in Syria based, I'm guessing, on Syrian intelligence information. Um, And so I'm going to go through it. I've taken out the most important points. um, So not all of the points are included. So first of all, the claim is that there were meetings in Paris between French and British intelligence between May and July, and the head of the so-called Syrian Brigade Party, effectively a derivative of the Free Syrian Army, the original uh, moderate so-called rebels uh, inside Syria based in the south. It is believed that Qatari funding, of course, Qatar refused to normalize uh, with President Assad and Syria uh, during the recent normalization with Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE, etc. So they're funding this new movement with 30 million to move against the Syrian state. 200,000 apparently has already been given to the leadership of the brigade and the movement for autonomy in Sweda to provide water tanks, medical assistance, etc., to compensate for the Syrian government's inability to provide all essential services due to many factions or or many reasons, but of course, predominantly to the sanctions that have been in place since the beginning of the war and have increased incrementally. Um, To increase sectarian discourse and calls for autonomy, so in other words, a new federalist project very similar to the Kurdish project uh, in the Northeast, also backed by the US, UK, and predominantly Israel to establish border crossings for uh, humanitarian aid, ostensibly, in fact, to import militants and weapons from Jordan that have been prepared prior to this new project. 16,000 Druze trainees at the Altanef base, which we've talked about, 3,500 are ready and prepared to replace state security forces. So again, we see this style of shadow state uh, manufacture. 7,500 terrorists that we've talked about on this program before from the Turkey-occupied territory in the north will, uh, after training in Al-Tanef, will be deployed to the border with Jordan to control the crossings, just as Al-Qaeda or HDS control the crossings between uh, Turkey and Idlib. Then, of course, there will be moves to achieve international recognition of the federalist movement from France, the UK, and the US and to ask for international protection, which may well include a no-fly zone. French, UK, US intelligence will provide communication networks, logistics, surveillance technology, joint operations room for the movement to be established on the border with Jordan. So um, let's have a look at what's actually happening and let's see if this horrible prophecy is being fulfilled. Unfortunately, it appears that it is. These are recent protests uh, in Sweda city itself, you'll note the circle around uh, balaclavid armed uh, militants. They could be from anywhere. The likelihood is that they are, if they are not Druze uh, themselves, they will be, of course, the militants that were brought down from the north or uh, other Free Syrian army derivatives that have been trained also in Al Tanif. 
calling for autonomy. So we don't see here the Syrian flag. All these images that I'm going to show you, you will not see the Syrian national flag. So here is a call from autonomy. So already the, 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 the prophecy, as I said, is being fulfilled. Moving on. <clears throat> um, this is a blog that's, that's writing up the protests in uh, Sweden itself. And of course, Sweden uh, and Dada, uh, Dada, of course, was uh, the start of the Western orchestrated so-called revolution um, in 2011. And it's very close to Sweden. It's on the border also with Jordan, very close to Israel also. Um, this uh, blog is talking about negotiations between President Assad and the Druze in southern Syria have failed demonstrations expected tomorrow. I believe that's today, but let's have a look at this blog. So here it's saying um, that the anti-Assad sentiments are being um, shown not only within Sweda and Dara districts, but uh, also beyond. So we'll come back to that. But clearly what they're trying to do here is to incite protests throughout Syria. Uh, then moving on. So this is a blog written by something called the Abu Ali Express. But if you look where I've circled, you will see an Israeli flag. And of course, Israel has a huge investment in this movement of federalism. It has been backing, for example, the Men of Dignity movement, which was established in 2013 under the control of Walid Jumblat in Lebanon amongst the Lebanese Druze. Um, and so therefore, Israel has, has a real vested interest in control of these southern districts of Syria. So here again, this is Megaphone News, the Syrian city of Sweda witnessed the largest anti-Assad protests since strikes and demonstrations. So we mentioned um, that they would be calling for strikes, that they would be cutting off services. I think that bit was actually missed off the bottom of the slide. Um, but here we have a media channel, Sueda24, reported that activists confirmed that the internet connection was weak. But here we have them also closing roads to prevent Russian forces from coming into the city after learning that the latter might come to bring food aid. So they're clearly trying to paralyze the governorate in order for the various um, members of the movement to appear as the saviors providing the essential resources for the people. The electricity also was cut off yesterday to the whole governorate and to parts of Dara. So this is an activist actually in Dara. So for the fifth consecutive day, we continue until the regime falls and Nazi Russia is expelled from our land. Glory to great Syria. Well, interesting that Nazi Russia, that terminology is employed there, but we'll see why shortly if we move on. <clears throat> so this is a video of the actual uh, Sweda protests, I think a couple of days ago, produced by the Sweda 24 media channel. Just roll that. Um, just a quick comment on that. What he's actually saying is that uh, we are one people, Syrians are one people. And yet I will repeat, there are no women in these protests. There are uh, no Syrian Arab Republic flags. There are only the Druze flags and three uh, Syrian army flags. So the former French colonialist flag. So former terrorists are actually mingling with these uh, Sweda protesters. And also interesting, all of the videos are uh, zoomed in, which is exactly what they did in 2011. We now have some zoomed out video footage, which shows that the protests are relatively small. So exactly the same um, kind of theatrics that we saw back in 2011. But the main channel that is producing information at the moment is this one, Sueda24, based in Sueda itself. Let's have a look at who they are. Um, you will remember that I did a report on the BBC uh, Captagon documentary where it's claiming that President Assad personally and his family is creating a narco state in Syria. 
that was also collaborated on by various media channels in Syria, including Suweda 24. And let's see, of course, the, the opposition are now picking up uh, from that BBC documentary claiming that Assad has turned Syria into a narco state, becoming Pablo Escobar of the Middle East through Captagon. So clearly the BBC rushed through that documentary in preparation, one can assume, um, for this movement. So here we have an article. I just want to show how this works. So you have Sueda media on the ground, uh, citizen journalists and so on, just like in 2011, producing the images and the narratives picked up by AP, Associated Press and Reuters. Um, residents in southern Syria raid ruling party offices, block road as protests over economy intensify. And then let's see who then picks it up. So Times of Israel picks up exactly the same story from AP. And Suweda 24 provided the photos and the story. So very familiar pattern here. Um, Ronan Altainen was um, a, a very prominent Western activist for regime change inside Syria. I've had many arguments with him. Um, but let's have a look at who he is tagging in this tweet. BBC Breaking, Sky News Break, Martin Shulov of The Guardian, Peter Tatchell, Bianca Jagger, Clarissa Ward of CNN. Um, and of course, he's talking, he's basically taking the narratives back to 2011 and the alleged peaceful um, protest. And moving on, here you have, he's called Free Syrian Army Soldier. He's talking and he shows a video of the burning of President Assad's picture in Sweda itself. But if you look on the right, I've circled there. One, he supports Ronan Tynan's project, uh, trying to criminalize President Assad. But it's, he is, of course, Slava Ukraini. He's a supporter of Ukraine. So this shows quite clearly how this movement is tying into uh, US operations, not only inside Syria. Here you have Haid Haid, senior consulting associate fellow for Chatham House. Um, and he's claiming that following demonstrations in Dara, Sueda, and briefly in uh, Jeremana, I think that is, um, protests have now broken out in Aleppo, specifically in Al-Fidus, Al-Sukri, and Salah al-Din. This is an outright lie. Um, I have had evidence from uh, friends of mine in Aleppo that no such demonstrations are taking place. We know that uh, videos of protests against Jelani on the Turkish border have been used to try and portray protests in central Syria. I do have to say that the majority of people in Syria, despite suffering severe economic hardship because of the sanctions, because of 12 years war, are quite well aware of what is going on and are pushing back hard against this recent attempt to, to basically divide them along sectarian lines. But let's have a look at what the um, various EU allies are talking about. So the UK, the Syrian regime and its allies continue to profit whilst the Syrian people in the region suffer the consequences. UK statement at the Security Council. Again, he takes it back to Resolution 2254, political interference in Syrian affairs. And he reiterates the same narratives from 2011. Moving on, we also have the German special envoy to Syria, also drawing attention to Resolution 2254 and the fact uh, that there should be a transitional governance. In other words, we're back to regime change narratives, although a little softer perhaps than 2011, but profiting from uh, the movement and the protests in southern Syria. Also, at the time that the alleged intelligence meetings were going on in Paris, there was an inaugural meeting of an organization called Madania, which brings, again, all of the opposition figures under one umbrella including Raid Salah, who's on the director's board. Next slide, Mike. Mm -hmm. um, Raid Salah is the leader of the White Helmet. So we see them uh, reemerge once more within this organization that, as I said, had its inauguration just as the plans were being put in motion for this new southern uh, movement. And then look who's behind uh, Madania, none other than Ayman Asfari, funder uh, of hundreds of thousands to the Tory government from Cameron through to May. I don't have any recent figures on him, but also instrumental. He's a British uh, Syrian, a British resident Syrian um, 
oil baron, um, the CEO of Petrofac. He had oil interest in Syria. Um, and here he is basically setting up this so-called opposition umbrella organization in Paris in June, just as these plans were being finalized. So Syria, while I just wanted to say, you know, Biden is losing the war in Ukraine. Syria now has, a friend of mine pointed out, about 14 months of Biden trying to gain what he perceives as an easy victory um, in Syria while he's losing in Ukraine. So Syria now is facing basically U.S. aggression in the northeast to close all borders with Iraq and Iran. And now this new uh, incubated movement in the south, which benefits, of course, Israel, the U.S., the U.K. and the EU. I mean, I think that my first thought on this, and maybe this is overly harsh, but it, it's it's maybe a little disappointing that that Syrian people on the ground don't see, don't recognise the same pattern coming along again. With is that is that unfair? It's no, it's not unfair. The the thing is that those that are protesting and that are taking part in this movement are, I would still say and hope, the minority in Sweden. Of course, the fear is that that minority has the backing of both Al-Tanaf U.S. military base, of Israel, and of the terrorists or militants that have been that are not inconsiderate in number that are moved down to that region, and the majority that may be with the Syrian state and understand what is going on are now at risk of assassination, liquidation, kidnapping, etc. So it's a complex situation, Mike. I would say that the majority of the Syrian people in what I call kind of central Syria um, are very aware of the situation and are definitely pushing back against it. But, you know, the West is an expert at at exploiting sectarian differences and and hardship that they've imposed upon these people. Yes. Okay. thank you very much. Any more to be discussed, but we could do that in extra time, Vanessa. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's move on to BRICS then, because no matter what anybody thinks about China, uh, at the end of the day, this is a very significant event. Um, so uh, this took place the last few days, finished yesterday in Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin was not there uh, by mutual agreement uh, in inverted commas because uh, of the international arrest, arrest warrant that exists. Uh, so therefore, Russia was represented by Sergei Lavrov, although Putin did uh, join uh, the event remotely uh, by video link. So I just wanted to uh, run through a couple of the comments by uh, Xi Jinping and get your thought, both your thoughts on this. Uh, so here he is. Uh, the, the, he was uh, made these statements uh, um, on thir- uh, Thursday. Is that yesterday? Uh, we yes, lose track. Uh, we need to promote development and prosperity for all. Every country has the right to development, and the people in every country have uh, the freedom to pursue a happy life. Um, so th- I thought this was a very interesting statement, of course, because he's referring to the old colonial past uh, and. Uh, uh, well, we'll get some comments in a second of that. Let's move on with the next bit. We need to achieve universal security. Facts have shown that any attempt to keep enlarging a military alliance, expand one's own sphere of influence, or squeeze other countries' buffer of security can only create security predicament and uh, insecurity for all countries. Now, of course, uh, on the face of it, that uh, is referring to Ukraine and uh, the Russian situation, the Russian special operation. But not only that, uh, because, of course, recently uh, there was a a defense pact signed, if we can bring this on screen, uh, between uh, the US, South Korea and Japan. uh, And this uh, uh, Korean uh, outlet is very much pushing back against that defense pact. But this is an expansion of NATO effectively uh, into the uh, Chinese realm, if you like. Um, and so this uh, news outlet uh, is running a campaign against this uh, US, uh, Japan, South Korea t- trilateral agreement uh, and the potential of where it's going to go. So a quote from this is saying a military alliance between South Korea, the US and Japan will lead to an adversarial relationship with China, Russia and North Korea and dramatically worsen inter-Korean tensions on the Korean Peninsula. We object to the three leaders integrating their countries in a trilateral uh, military alliance. Uh, So we'll come on to this a bit more in a second, but coming back to Xi Jinping then, 
here's another thing he said. We will. We need to stay committed to exchanges among civilizations and mutual learning. One flower alone cannot make a beautiful spring. Only blossoming of a rich variety of flowers can bring spring to the global garden. So, you know, this on the face of it seems like uh, enthusiastic support for the idea of national sovereignty. And so on, he went on to say, deliberately creating division with the assertion of democracy versus authoritarianism and liberalism versus autocracy can only split the world and lead to a clash of civilizations. So, uh, Vanessa, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that before we move on to the next section of this. Well, I mean, I think, um, I think, you know, he's correct. I think what we're seeing from the West is this constant, I mean, I've just talked about it in Syria, right? The West benefits from division. China and Russia seem to benefit from unity and from countries working together to develop their own resources, etc. So, um, yes, I think it, it's correct. Yes. Okay, well, let's uh, move on then. We've got a little bit of video here of the announcement of the new uh, BRICS development bank. We have decided to enter formal negotiations to establish a BRICS-led new development bank based on our own considerable infrastructure needs, which amounts to around 4.5 trillion US dollars over the next five years, but also to cooperate with other emerging markets and developing countries in future. Our resolve extends further to also establish a BRICS contingent reserve arrangement. We are working towards related initiatives in our economic deliberations to further strengthen our intra-BRICS cooperation. So the point here is they don't want to play with the West anymore. Uh, and uh, I think this is the key point here. What's the difference between this new development bank and what we've seen uh, with the World Bank and the IMF in the past? Well, this quote from Dilma Rousseff probably highlights it. Our financial support is provided without onerous conditions. And of course, as we've seen many, many times in the past, uh, infrastructure projects in uh, Africa, other developing nations have needed to be funded. They've been funded through the IMF and so on, and they've been funded in such a way that there have been preconditions, not only in terms of uh, political change within a country yeah. uh, to a Western narrative, but also financial change within a country to a Western narrative uh, and, uh, and so on. So, and also a lot of the contracts went to Western companies as well. So this on the face of it, if, if we accept it at face value, is something completely different. Um, so now uh, let's now look at the South African uh, president here, uh, Ramaphosa. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. We have decided to invite the Argentine Republic, the Arab Republic of Egypt, the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to become full members of BRICS. The membership will take effect from the 1st of January 2024. So uh, that might seem like expansion, but of course not military expansion is the, is the key point here. Uh, but let's just briefly have a look at what the Western response to this announcement was, well, the headline in the Telegraph from Con Coughlin, the Defence and Foreign Affairs editor, uh, was uh, BRICS is now a motley crew of failing states. Uh, and then he goes, on, he, he goes on to slate the whole thing, but then he talks about uh, India, the particular concern that India uh, should be grabbed by the West. So he's saying India's real adversary is China, not the West, which makes an absurdity of its continued membership of BRICS. Far better to tempt India into the West's embrace. What a, what a turn of phrase there by making it a member of, for example, an expanded G8, a globally recognized body firmly committed to economic growth and democratic values. A globally recognized body, 
Okay, well, we'll see. But uh, let's look at the next uh, response, in a sense, to what's been going on with BRICS. And this is from the Atlantic Council this time, because we've got to have more war. Uh, and really, at the end of the day, Brian, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but uh, it seems to me that, that these countries are rejecting the war narrative that we've been fed by the UK and the US over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and uh, do it, wanting to do something different. So we put this from the Atlantic Council back on screen. Now, the United States and allies must be ready to deter a two-front war and nuclear attacks in East Asia. Uh, and uh, so they're saying that, uh, well, instead of recommending that uh, the US maybe wants to organize some kind of peace, uh, instead they need to increase the military presence in the region uh, because that's going to help, isn't it? Well, uh, war is good for the West, Mike. It's as simple as that. It's good for the banks. It's good for the banking system. And um, of course, the objective is divide and rule. So war is good for the West in all, in all respects. And that's clearly the agenda here. I just want to say, though, the Telegraph has sunk to the pits because they can't come out with a respectable analysis they have to use. Uh, uh, what was the word? Motley crew. Yes. Uh, can you not do better, Telegraph? And the answer to that is no, I don't think so. Well, let's end on some positive stuff. And this is to do with the good work of our UK column viewers. And uh, a gentleman called Gary sent me an email. And I'm really going to take you through his email because it's very, very interesting indeed. Uh, it's to do with the company Acurix, which I spoke about couple of days ago. This is the company which is taking data from GPs and making appointments for people. Uh, he said, this is something I wrote in September 2020. At that time, I was getting many prompts to use a Curix, so I looked into them as best I could, then promptly filed it and forgot it. You might find this interesting. Uh, well, Gary, you're absolutely right, because I found it fascinating. It says that a Curix is collecting what's called structured QOF um, data, that's quality of outcomes framework money. Now, this is um, anecdotal because it's a quote from a doctor, but basically he was saying he used the system for two weeks, uh, 50 texts were sent out, and that produced him £2,000 of QOF monies. And then it, it uh, is claimed here that each QOF point is worth 194 pounds and 83 pence. So data becomes money is what we're being told. Here's some of the information that's going to be collected about you. Uh, anything to, from asthma to whether you smoke, uh, alcohol intake, blood pressure, flu vaccination, plus your name, date of birth, NHS number, mobile address, email address, demographic data. Uh, plus, uh, I found this particularly interesting, correspondence between you and your healthcare professional and between healthcare professionals about you. Now, this is all coming from the email. Uh, everything I've seen looks to be well-researched, but if there's more people out there that can check this, that will be very good. Uh, add in another bit here. It says you, you can't use the NHS national data opt-out to stop Acurix receiving your data. However, the NHS's data controllers can, and they have a department which does exactly that. The Clinical Research Data Link, or CPRD, and it received more than 10 million in revenue last year. Now, Debbie has already mentioned this organisation, but just so we know what we're looking at, uh, first of all, the scale of Acurix, 98% of all GPs in England are using this system. So our data is being hoovered up. But here's CPRD, uh, 60 million patients, including 18 million currently registered. But this comes straight back to the MHRA that has failed everybody in terms of safety over vaccines. And here we are, CPRD has developed world-leading services based on using real-world data to support clinical trials and interventional studies. So this data is not being uh, put to good use for the patient in the first instance or our health. It's being used to support clinical trials. And I think that says it all. Well, we'll end on this one, which is more happy news. Thank you very much to Linda for sending this through. Several people told me about this. The BBC has had to ask why has Radio 4 listenership dropped Please give us feedback, says the BBC. Why do you think this is happening? Uh, well, lots and lots of people commented. We've just picked up on one here. 
Uh, this gentleman, Daniel Fuchs, said, I loved Radio 4 and all its news programs for over 30 years, but your coverage of the Corbyn years exposed you as a cheap little propaganda outfit that peddles lies. Hope that helps. So it's been very clear that the public are really telling the BBC uh, what they think about them. And I would imagine that uh, the BBC managers are beginning to get even more wobbly. We need to end it there. Yes. Okay, Vanessa, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, for those of you that are subscribers of UK Column, join us in a few minutes for extra time. Um, we will be dealing with some of those matters to do with uh, Syria and banks in a little bit more detail, but also having a little bit of fun. We must end there. Thank you all very much, particularly people who are supporting the UK Column financially. We can only do what we do with your financial support. Thank you all very much. And we'll be back at the same time on Monday. See you then. Bye-bye.